Good morning, church family. Today we are reading from Colossians chapter 3, verse 12 through 17. And if you are using the Pew Bible, it is on page 984. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12 through 17. Put on them as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of God. We're in the middle of our summer series called One Another. One Another. Uh, and there, if, you didn't, if you're new, we have a, a community art project that we're doing out in the hallway after the service. You are uh, invited to uh, take one of those pieces of paper, tissue paper, and put it up on the tree as we build this collage together as a way of actually helping us do what this passage says by letting the Word of Christ dwell in us ritually. One another. The reason this is called one another is because there is nearly 60 commands in the New Testament that speak to how we are to treat one another or live with one another. So commands like love one another, forgive one another, welcome one another. And so we're looking at several commands over this summer to help us grow in our ability to Live together as a church family. Live together as a community uh, of believers in this community at large by being a light uh, to this community. How we live together, I said this the first week, I'm going to say it again. How we live together in community is one of the most compelling ways to show the transforming power of the gospel. How we live together in community is one of the most important and compelling ways to show the transforming power. It shows that the gospel works, that it changes lives. Today, we're looking at this command specifically. Teach one another. From Colossians 3. We read from 12, verses 12 to 17 for context, but the sermon text is actually verses 16 and 17. Let me just ask you before we get started here, just a very simple question. Are you a teacher? Are you a teacher? Thank you, my brother Ray. Are you a teacher? I know immediately the school teachers are like, yep, that's me. What do you need me to do? Let me know. Or you're like, please don't ask me to do another thing. It's the summertime. And thank God for teachers. That's their profession. We love you, teachers. But when I ask the question, I'm not referring to those who are teaching as a profession. I'm asking you, are you a teacher? 
Meaning, do you ever instruct or guide or explain or even model things for others? This could be something as simple as teaching someone how to play a game, teaching someone how to fold a piece of paper, how to address a letter, how to swing a tennis racket, how to insert a formula into Excel, how to make a proposal, how to say a presentation. You may not be a teacher by profession, and let's face it, you may not think you're a very good teacher at all, but I submit to you this morning that every single person here is a teacher. You show other people how to do things using your words, using ideas, and maybe even by demonstration. We are all teachers. The question is, what are you teaching others? Are you teaching others about who God is? Are you teaching others about what the gospel message is? Are you teaching others about how to live the Christian life? In our text, there is a clear command. Teach and admonish one another. Who does that command apply to? Pastors? Does it say, pastors, teach and admonish one another. Sunday school teachers only, teach and admonish one another. Do you see any qualifiers in this text? No. Because there are none. Because this applies to every single Christian. We've already looked at how we are called to love one another and welcome one another. And there's likely no one saying that doesn't apply to me. We know we all are called to love one another. We know, even though it's challenging, we know we, we ought to welcome one another. But when it comes to this command to teach one another, many of us are likely to find any and all excuse as to why this doesn't apply to us. And what I want to start is, by saying is, don't do that. Don't do that. You are a teacher. You are a learner as well. And if this command to teach one another does apply to us, every one of us, the question is, what does that look like? How do we do that? So let's look at this text. Lesson number one is treasure the word of Christ deeply. Treasure the word of Christ deeply. Let me, let me give you the context since we read the whole context there from verses 12. This command to teach one another is set within the context of Colossians chapter 3, where Paul is calling believers in verses 5 to 11 to put off sinful habits, right? Things that, that tear down true community. And he, and he mentions things, if you look back up at verse 5, he mentions things that tear down community, like sexual immorality. You're like, well, that's just my own body. That's just my, nope, it tears community. Coveting, slander, obscene talk, lying. He says, look, these practices were common among you before you were Christians, but now that you're in Christ, put them to death. Put them to death. They no longer fit with your new identity as being in Christ. And now in verses 12 to 15, he says, uh, put on certain things. So put off those sinful practices. Now put on these behaviors and practices that are consistent with being God's chosen, holy, and beloved people. In other words, this is your new identity. Now live out of the life that is consistent with your new identity. We emphasize this all the time at Grace, but I want to repeat it once again. The commands to do certain things 
always flows from God initiating his initiating work inside of us. In other words, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, God saves us, God rescues us, God makes us new, not by works, but by sheer grace. It's as a gift. He says, you were once dead spiritually, and he's raised us alive. He's made us alive. We were enemies. Now we're adopted. We're his beloved children. And now that we're his, he says, now live as my children. Live as my beloved children. Respond to my love and grace by living according to my love and grace. Or another way of putting it is, the imperative flows from the indicative. The commands flow from what God has already done for us. Here's what I'm trying to say. God transforms us by his grace and then empowers us to live the Christian life by that same grace. Does that make sense? This should be, if, you're, if, you're, if you've been a part of grace, this should be what you hear all the time, that we don't live the Christian life in our own strength, but we are in Christ now and we have new desires and a new power to live out what God says in verses 12 to 15. And you'll notice that in contrast to the sinful habits that destroy community, Paul now lists these virtues or behaviors that cultivate true community, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, patience, meekness. These help us grow in trust and unity. Now, what does what I just said have to do with letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly? Well, everything I just said is revealed to us in the word of Christ. Everything that God has done for us is found in the word of Christ. We don't even, we won't even know what God has done in our hearts and our lives apart from God's word teaching us. That's why Paul says in verse 16, now let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. He's been explaining that to them and reminding them, this is the word of Christ. This is the good news of Christ. If you want me to define what is the word of Christ, here's what it is. Here's a a simple definition. The word of Christ is the gospel message proclaiming what God has done through Jesus Christ. The gospel message. Gospel means good news. It's the good news message proclaiming what God has done through Jesus Christ. And here's what you and I need to understand, that the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation points to and proclaims the gospel message of what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. Jesus himself made that clear. In Luke 24, after Jesus had died on the cross and he had risen from the dead, and now he appears to these two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus. You remember the story? And he's like, what's wrong? Like, oh man, Jesus, we thought he was the man. We thought he was the Messiah. And now he's dead. And, 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 he, and then he confronts them. And look what he says to them. It says, and beginning with Moses and the prophets, that's the Old Testament. That's the Hebrew scriptures. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning who? Himself. Everything that came before the Gospels, before Christ, were pointing to, proclaiming, foreshadowing, preparing for Christ himself. The word of Christ refers to all of the Scriptures because it all points to and is fulfilled in the gospel, in the work and person of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul will say in Romans 10, 17, so faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. 
All the Bible is the word of Christ. There, you'll, you might hear, if, if you're on social media, if you're kind of savvy, you know that there are some people who say, We're, we are red-letter Christians. You ever heard that? Red-letter Christians means whatever words and red letters, which are the words of Jesus, that's, how, that's what we go by. We go by the words of Jesus. We're not going to get tainted by Old Testament stuff and the apostles which kind of get it wrong and they twist it for themselves. We are red-letter Christians. Well, listen, we are not red-letter Christians. There is no such thing as a red-letter Christian. We are an every-letter Christian. The Word of God is the Word of Christ. Jesus interpreted all of the Old Testament to show how it fits with what his plan was to come and rescue us and indwell us and give us life. Here's the point. In order to wisely teach the word, we are called to deeply treasure the word. You see, I haven't even gotten to the command, teach God's word, because Paul hasn't gotten there yet. He wants the word of Christ to dwell in you, in your heart, richly. The word to dwell means to be at home or to feel at home. In other words, Paul's saying, let the word of Christ find its home in your heart. Is the word of God welcome in your heart? Is it at home there? Or when you read it, is it often like, that just, that's not, that, that's, a, that's strange to me. It feels out of place in my heart. That doesn't fit with where I want to live, how I want to live, the choices I want to make. That doesn't fit with my view of things. Or are you saying, God, this is, you are at home here. If it feels strange, it's because I need to change, not you. It says, let it dwell, live in you, find its home in your heart. And then he says, let it dwell in you richly. That means abundantly, deeply. Is the word of God at home in your heart? Is it living in you abundantly? Do you read and study and welcome God's word into your life? Do you love the word of God? Please understand, you cannot love God without loving his word. But let me also warn you this. You can fall into the trap of loving God's word, but not loving God. You said, no, you can't. God's word always, no. Ever since Paul's day, there were people who grew in knowledge of God in order to boast about their superior knowledge. In fact, that's what he's challenging those in Colossians. Uh, They're boasting about their superior knowledge. And Paul is warning us of the danger of this practice. To grow in Bible knowledge without growing in godly character is the foundation of legalism. It's the Pharisees on display. But on the flip side, there are many of you, maybe you're a new Christian or maybe you've been a Christian for a while, you've tried reading the Bible and you're just like, you know what, I, I, I think doctrine, you hear the word doctrine or theology and you think that's either irrelevant or you're scared of it, right? Like doctrine, ah, what is it, how do I even approach that? Or you're just like, no, that's irrelevant. I'm just trying to love God and love people. Just can't keep it simple. No. Theology, is, the word theology mean, word, means words about God, words of God. Doctrine is literally how you know God. As we study God's word, 
We do, we do so not to just gain knowledge, but to know God and be transformed by God. If faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, then this word actually produces faith. It, 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 it gives birth to faith in our hearts, and faith leads to a life of faith. Living by faith. That's why John says in 1 John 3.18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, in other words, word or talk only, but in deed and in truth. In other words, let God's word change us and transform us so that we live in light of it. I love what Mark Twain said. He, he, famously, he famously said this, quote, most people are bothered by those passages of scripture which they cannot understand. But as for me, I have always noticed that the passages of scripture that trouble me most are those which I do understand. Let me ask you, does your knowledge of the Bible do any good? Is it changing you? Is it leading to love in deed and in truth? Is the word of Christ, is the word of Christ dwelling in you richly? Here's one just simple way. Does it come out when you speak and pray? Like in your conversations, does the word of God just, does it just spill out? Does it, are you connecting the word of God with life situations, with the people you're talking to? Or as you're praying, does it come out? That's how you know that the word of God is just so filling you that it, it has to come out in ways. Oh, that we would be a church that treasures the word of Christ deeply. Then, we are called to teach the word of Christ wisely. Teach the word of Christ wisely. Paul calls us to receive the word so that we can teach the word. Receive the word of Christ, teach the word of Christ. Just like we learned a few weeks ago, God initiates in loving us and then he calls us to love one another, right? God initiates, we respond. Same thing, God initiates in speaking his word to us and we respond by speaking God's word to others. This word for teaching, it actually means to provide instruction in either a formal or informal setting. It's not just the classroom setting he's talking about. He's talking about all kinds of ways that we teach and instruct and guide. The word admonish means to counsel or to warn. You see, teaching imparts or explains truth. And then admonishing emphasizes the importance of obedience and, and warns about the consequences of disobedience. Or admonishing shows how the word of Christ should be lived out in various life circumstances. Notice what Paul is teaching us here. The whole church, not just pastors or leaders, the whole church bears the responsibility to teach and admonish one another. Yes, pastors have a unique calling to teach God's word and equip the church for the work of the ministry. That's what Ephesians teaches us. And part of that calling is to oversee the teaching that happens in various settings to ensure that what is being taught here, grace, is in line with the gospel and sound doctrine. That is on us. We own that shepherding role. And I pray that what you see modeled from all the elders who preach and teach is a deep love for God's word that is exhibited in loving and humble and insightful teaching. 
It's why pastors will spend, at least pastors here at this church, will spend 20 to 25 hours studying for a sermon. Did you know that? So much for the pastors only work one day a week. That'd be nice. No. Why do we do that? Why? Why? Because Christianity is preeminently a teaching religion. But please hear me. Paul is not talking to pastors here. He's not talking to Sunday school teachers. He's talking to all Christians. You. He's talking to you. I'm pointing my finger at you. I don't often do this, but I'm pointing right at you. You have been called. You have been equipped by God to teach and admonish your fellow believers in formal settings and in informal settings. And our church should be filled with good teaching from the youngest among us to the oldest, from small groups to Bible studies to Sunday morning classes to Awana to youth group to worship services. We are all responsible for the spiritual growth and maturity of one another. If you see an area where there is growth needed, it's okay to point that out. It's okay to see the need, acknowledge it, let us know that. But guess what? We are all responsible for one another's faith journey. Paul says in Romans 15, 14, I myself am satisfied about you, that you are filled with goodness and knowledge, and that you are able or competent to instruct one another. You have what it takes. God has given it to you. Spiritual maturity will always be the result of good, solid, consistent biblical teaching. Didn't Jesus say, if you're asking, how important really is teaching? Jesus literally gave us his marching orders, right? Here's what you're to do and go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. There it is. At the heart of the Great Commission is the role of teaching, the significance of teaching. I hope and pray that you anticipate gathering on Sunday mornings because you are hungry for the Word of God to be taught and received. I hope so. I hope you don't just come because you want to see people that you haven't seen all week or because the music is fantastic, which it is, or because you want to go to your Sunday school class, which is awesome. I hope you're, wait, you're praying, God, I can't wait for you to speak through your word. If you don't want to be taught, you don't want to be a Christian. We are all responsible for the spiritual growth of one another. Now, that doesn't mean we go around as rule keepers seeking to see who is and who isn't following a set of rules. That's not what I mean by teaching. It means we are to be so involved in each other's lives that we are speaking God's word regularly to each other. That we are reminding one another of God's spectacular work of rescuing us from sin and giving us new life through his son, Jesus Christ. That we are to be rehearsing the gospel for one another and to one another, admonishing one another to obey, encouraging one another. What do I do in this situation? And thinking through, how do, we, how do we help bring God's word to bear in this situation? What do I do? I'm looking for, to buy a home. I'm looking to make this purchase. I'm looking to disciple my kids. I'm looking to figure out how to care for my adult, my aging parents. How do we bring God's word to bear? 
We teach one another as those who are under the rule and authority of God's word. That's where compassion and humility and meekness and patience come in from verse 12. I don't just take this and go, you dummy, boom, 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 come on, obey. No, I actually go, let's do this together. Let's, let's look together. Let's patiently, oh, you messed up, Psht, come on. No, I know you never do that, but you, you think it sometimes, right? Why is she so, why is he so, and then you fill in the blank. I know there are some of you here who have sat under teachers and preachers who did not teach the Word of God with compassion, kindness, and humility. And if you have been hurt by someone who misused or abused the Word of God for personal gain, or who taught the Word of Christ without exhibiting the character of Christ, I want to say to you, I'm deeply sorry. It grieves my heart. And I know that makes it even harder, all the more harder, for you to listen to faithful teachers of the Bible. I pray that God would grant you the grace to open your heart up to godly men and women who can shape your word, shape your life with with compassionate and humble teaching of God's word. Church, please hear me. If we will live this command out to teach and admonish one another, it will not just lead to greater knowledge, it will lead to changed lives. Why do we as pastors pour into this commitment to teaching as a church? Because we know God's word, deep-rooted into our hearts, flowing out of us as we live, can change our marriages. It can change our parent-child relationships. It can change our relationships with one another. It can change our work relationships. It can change how, how we trust God with our finances. It can change the putting off of sin and the putting on on the fruit of the Spirit. This is what will change our lives. Yes, yeah, you know, the world has all their, this is going to make life better, right? Better education and and more availability for things for for girls and women, and yes and amen. But listen, this is what's going to change us now and eternally. You want our kids to grow up and follow Jesus? Show them that this word means the world to you. I hear stories of missionaries come back and they tell me that when they get the word into the hands of those who've never had it, literally, this guy, 85 years old, a missionary told me, he he was given the word of God and they took it and they put this missionary on trial and they put this guy up on the stand and they ask him, why do you have this book? What's wrong with you? And after questioning, they said, here, take this book back. And he literally took the Bible and he put it to his heart. And he was crying as he walked out of the room because he thought he was going to lose his most valuable treasure. And you know how I treat the Bible so many times? It just sits there and I don't read it. It just sits there and I'm thinking, and I'm a teacher of the Bible. Lord, help us. Please help us to be able to live in light of this, to teach God's word wisely because we cherish it deeply. Notice we are to teach and admonish in all wisdom, he says. We're to teach and warn one another and then patiently wait for the Lord to bring the change that our hearts need. That's what it means in all wisdom. Wisdom means 
We don't manipulate. We don't coerce. We, we seek to know what to say, how to say it, and when to say it. That's wisdom. How do we let the word of Christ dwell in us ritually, and how do we teach one another? Paul gives us one major way, which might surprise you. Look at verse 16 again. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. Singing is not the only means, but is a powerful means of communicating and implanting God's word in us. And we know this because music has a unique ability to speak to our hearts, doesn't it? Those who, have, who, who may even have lost some of their um, um, mental capacities. I go to nursing homes all the time, and they, they can't remember things. And then I'll say, well, let me just sing this song to you. And I'll start singing, and they'll start singing with me. Because music gets into us in this unique way. And, and it's a beautiful thing that Paul includes three different categories of songs because that shows us that from the beginning of the church, the church was marked by a variety and a richness in Christian singing. The early church sang psalms. Literally, some of our songs today are directly taken from the psalms. It says they sang hymns. They had a hymnal just like us, and they would say, please turn to hymn number 235. That's a joke. They did not have hymnals. <laughs> Do you know what a hymn is? A hymn is not defined by whether it's in the hymnal. A hymn is not determined by how old a song is. Right? Give me the old songs, the good hymns. These new songs, they're not hymns. No, that's actually not true. A hymn is a format. It's the format of a song. A hymn has verses that tell a story. And, and often a chorus that's either a summary of that story or a, a response of praise. Great is thy faithfulness is a hymn. Right? Because it tells the story. Taken straight from Lamentations chapter 3. It's a hymn, not because it's old, but because it's format. So is Christ is our hope in life and death. Written just in the last couple of years. That is a hymn. Spiritual songs, he says. Spiritual songs. These are songs that just offer general praise to God. No specific format. Often, if, if you, I read some of the early writings in, of Tertullian and, and Pliny the Younger, uh, the first couple centuries after the church, and they, they said spiritual songs were songs when, when the, the body would gather, and then a believer would just kind of, a song would well up, and they would begin to sing God's word and celebrate God's grace in song. Kind of spontaneous singing. I'm not sure how that will work in our midst, but I mean, I'd be glad to start, Pastor Andrew, and singing a <laughs> spiritual song. A song for us like, I'm so glad. That's a spiritual song. I'm so glad Jesus lifted me. Not a hymn, even though it's in the hymnal. Here's Paul's point. Singing is central to how we worship God, how we let God's word dwell in us ritually. And so we sing songs that are true about God, true about us, true about the gospel. And in so doing, we are teaching one another the word of God. We take congregational singing very seriously at grace. We want our voices to be the main instrument. 
And our goal is to sing songs that are theologically rich and musically beautiful because we want the word of Christ to dwell in us richly. Our goal, listen, our goal isn't to pick the right mix of style. Our goal is not to sing all your favorite songs. Pastor Andrew is not a DJ. As much as we would want him to be. Shallow music produces shallow Christians. Rich music cultivates deep Christians. Why do we sing about confession of sin? Why aren't our songs just happy and joyful? But because not all of life is happy and joyful. And because we're commanded to confess our sin to the Lord. Why do we have lament songs? Why do we talk about suffering? Why do we talk about, why do our songs point, talk about death? Why do we sing Christ our hope in life and death? Because we know one day we're going to face it. And part of our responsibility as a church is to help one another be prepared for that day when you face that final moment and you can say in your heart, if you can't even use words, Christ is my hope in life and right now even in death because you've been singing it for years. We sing with thanksgiving in our hearts to God, Paul says. With thanksgiving in your heart. The word for thanksgiving is a Greek word for grace. We sing because we're grateful for God's grace. Our singing should proclaim God's grace and celebrate the experience of God's grace. So, are you teaching the word of God, the word of Christ to others? Whether it's in one-on-one group settings, whether speaking or singing or modeling, Do you see this as your responsibility? And then finally, live from the word of Christ fully. Treasure the word of Christ deeply. Teach the word of Christ wisely. Now live from the word of Christ fully. Verse 17, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Notice how comprehensive this command is. Whatever you do, Paul has in mind every aspect of living, not just what we do on Sundays. There's no dichotomy between the secular and the spiritual in the Christian life. All of life is an act of worship. You on the computer on Monday morning and you singing to God with your hands out like this on Sunday morning, both can be an act of worship. All all that we do is meant to be done in the name of the Lord Jesus. All that we do, meaning eating, Working, playing, sleeping. Now for us, a name doesn't have much significance other than identification. right? It's basically, what are you called? But in the Bible, a name represents a person's character, their nature, their status. And we know that Jesus, Philippians 2, has the name above every other name, doesn't he? Because his, na- because his nature is divine. Because his character is perfect. Because his status is ultimate. And as Christians, we are called by his name. He is Christ and we are Christians. Right? Little Christ. We represent Christ. We follow Christ. We live like Christ. And so the only way to live out verse 17 is if we are living from the word of Christ fully. Meaning we're not just reading and meditating on the word of Christ we're letting it, the word do its transforming work inside of us, leading to a changed life. I said earlier that the word of Christ is the gospel message proclaiming what God has done in and through Jesus Christ. 
Are you living from that gospel message? Is the gospel of Jesus empowering you to live a life where you want to feast on God's word and teach God's word? If you're struggling today with reading and teaching God's word, here's what I want to help you do. Don't just plan to study harder this week. That's a good thing. You might want to start by saying, I'm going to try to read God's word tomorrow. That would be a good desire and a good commitment. But don't just say that. Don't just say, all right, come on, Mark. You can do it this week. Five times a week, you got to read God's word. Look, start by going back to the gospel. Remember Jesus. Think about Jesus. How did Jesus live? Didn't he let the word of Christ dwell in him richly? He's always quoting scripture and praying scripture. He was literally the son of God and he depended on the word of God at every turn. When he's tempted by the devil, what's he doing? Quoting scripture. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word just comes from the mouth of God. He's quoting Deuteronomy. It's spilling out of him because the word was at home in his heart. He welcomed it. Not only that, he was constantly teaching and admonishing, wasn't he? In all wisdom. Teaching was literally his main ministry. Yes, he did miracles, but even the miracles meant to validate his message. Jesus lived from the word of God fully, even when he was dying on the cross. When he's on the cross, what's he saying? He's quoting scripture, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22. He's teaching about the radical nature of forgiveness. Father, forgive them. He's literally teaching us what it looks like to forgive. Why did Jesus have to die? To pay the penalty of our constant rebellion against God's word. We don't want the word to be our authority. Let's just put all the cards on the table here. We don't want to do what God wants us to do. We want to do what we want to do. I want to do what, may, what I think makes me happy. I want to do with my money and my children and my family and my life and my time and my hobbies and my work. It's all mine. And God says, yeah, you're going to have to blow that up if you're going to live for me. That's the sin in my own heart. It's why you worry about things you have no business worrying about. Because the word of God is not dwelling in richly. It's your own figuring out, how am I going to make this work? How can we manage this? Jesus died because we think we don't need God to teach us how to live. We want to be our own saviors and masters. But you see, when we turn from our sin, and when we trust Jesus, when we say, Jesus, I admit that's how I live. But I don't want to live that way anymore. I can't live in my own strength. Jesus, I lay all my guilt and shame upon you and I receive from you all that you promised to give me. Listen, he tells us, he promises us, all the sin is gone, forgiven. All the shame is gone, covered. But listen, there's more. Colossians 3, 3, early in the chapter, he says, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. In other words, Christ didn't just die for you, you died with Christ. Through faith in Christ, you were united spiritually to his death and to his resurrection. Which means, not only does Jesus take your punishment, you get his reward. You get the righteousness of Jesus imputed to you. You get the glory of Jesus poured upon you. You get the love of Jesus inside of you. All of that's yours. That's verse 12. You are God's chosen ones now. 
You are holy. Well, I don't feel holy, but you are declared holy. You are beloved. All of that is yours because of Jesus. Why do we have to remember that? Because if Christ is now your life, he is living his life through you. He is changing your desires. He is changing your attitudes. He is changing your mindsets. He is changing your emotions. I, I have to feel this way. I can't, this, is, this is how I'm feeling. No, you don't have to. Christ can change those emotions. You don't have to, to, to hold a grudge against your spouse. You don't have to treat your kids that way. You don't have to treat other people that way. He can change your words and your actions. And you see, rehearsing the gospel, remembering it, and believing it anew can deepen your longing for the word of God because you know by it you get to experience more intimately this Savior who gave his life for you and now lives in you. Trusting the gospel more can give you greater courage to teach and admonish one another even when it seems scary and risky. You say, I don't want to say that thing in small group. I don't want to say that thing to a fellow church member. Speaking the truth in love, I can do this by God's grace and in wisdom. Do you know Christ as your Savior today? Do you need to trust him right now for the very first time? Maybe you've sat in church as a child or as an adult and you've heard many things about Christ, but you have not trusted in the gospel message, the word of Christ. Today is the day because we don't have tomorrow guaranteed. And Christian, are you a teacher? Are you a teacher? I hope you can see that the answer is yes. Are you eager to humbly learn from others and humbly teach others? Are you eager to see this body grow into full maturity to the fullness of Christ? Let's feast on God's word and let's teach God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have spoken in your word. Lord, I thank you personally that it's not my word, but your word. Even as a teacher, I, I bow before the authority of your word. All of us here bow before the authority of your word. We want to humble ourselves even in this moment. Lord, maybe I said something out of line. Maybe I said something and it annoyed someone. God, I pray that that would, that would be just, it would be taken out of their hearts and that they would focus on your word. That Christ died. And if we are in Christ, we died. And we have been raised with him. And that when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. Jesus, show us what it means to to have you as our life. Show us, Lord, that, that our job is not and cannot ever be our life. Show us that our our marriage, as important as that is, our children, our decisions about the future, those cannot be our life. Jesus, I pray that today we would be able to say as believers, Christ, you are our life. And if you're our life, how can I not want to spend time 
letting you speak to me, speak to us. That we are transformed into your image from one degree of glory to another as we encounter you in your word. God, for those who've been wrestling, those who are struggling to obey, help them to trust you in this moment to take a step of faith. And for those who don't know you, God, I pray that you would open their hearts, give them the gift of faith to repent and believe that Christ, you are our greatest treasure more than anything this world has to offer, that they might experience the beautiful gift of eternal life. Would you speak to us even now, we pray in Christ's name, amen.